Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all our brothers and sisters who have joined us in church this beautiful Christmas morning for worship of our triune God. What a blessing it is that we, in total freedom, may remember and celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We also extend a special welcome to all visitors who have joined us this morning here in church, but also to those who are with us remotely via the live stream. This morning we are privileged to witness the administration of baptism of little Elias Anthony, baby son, our brother and sister, David, Dathan and Katrina Plater. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel and the celebration of the sacraments, and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. Consistory has the following announcements. An attestation has been requested by Brother Douglas Bosch for the Free Reformed Church of Beldivers. We wish our brother the Lord's blessing in his new congregation. Our minister, Reverend Poppy, will be on holidays as from tomorrow. Anyone in need of pastoral care is requested to contact one of the office bearers. This afternoon service will commence at 3 p.m. instead of the normal 4 o'clock. So this afternoon, 3 o'clock. This morning the worship service will be conducted by Brother Dathan Plater, while Reverend Poppy will administer the sacraments of baptism. Before we commence the worship service, let us sing together from hymn 20 to verses 2 and 4. Verse 2 and 4 from hymn 20.
Please rise and let's worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's sing a song of praise to our God, hymn 29, the verses 1, 2, and 3. has given us his law to teach us about who he is, also to, to convict us of our sin and to show us what Christ has done for us. Let's submit ourselves to the law of the Lord. This morning we're going to hear the law as it comes to us in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your manservant or your maidservant or your, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's now sing together. We're going to make confession of the, the grace that we receive from God through Christ. We're going to sing from hymn 17, the verses 1, 2, 3, and 6.
Our brother and sister Plater have requested baptism for their son, Elias Anthony. To that end, let's first read together the form for the baptism of infants. If you wish to follow along, you can find that on page 597 of your book of praise. Love a congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin, and are therefore by nature children of wrath, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls, so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs, and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil, or to turn it to our benefit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing of our sins and the daily renewal of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, We are called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust him and to love him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and a trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they, without their knowledge, received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, Thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. The circumcision was the seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, 
laying his hands upon them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament to God for his glory, for our comfort, and for the upload of the congregation, let's call upon his holy name. Almighty eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood. But in your great mercy, saved and protected the believer known as family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, but led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground, by which baptism was signified. We therefore pray that you, in your infinite mercy, will graciously look upon this child and incorporate him by your Holy Spirit into your Son, Jesus Christ, that he may be buried with him by baptism into death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that he, following him day by day, may joyfully bear his cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Grant that he, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day that he may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ, your Son. All this we ask through him, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, the one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Can I now ask you to please rise? Beloved in Christ the Lord, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose and not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear, then, that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you are to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin, and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ, and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized? And second, do you confess the doctrine of the Old and New Testament, summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church, is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? And third, you promise his father and mother to instruct your child in this doctrine as soon as he, will, he is able to understand and to have him instructed therein to the utmost of your power. Brother Plater, what is your answer? I do. Sister Plater, what's your answer? And brothers and sisters, following the baptism, we're going to rise. You're invited to rise. So we're going to sing together from Psalm 134, verse 3. Elias Anthony Plater, I baptize you into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Let's now call upon the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer. Almighty, merciful God and Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You've received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son that you will always govern this child by your Holy Spirit that Elias may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, and that he may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that he may thus acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you've shown to him and to us all. May he live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king, and high priest, Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May he forever praise and magnify you and your Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. Then, Father, we thank you that you allow us to meet together here in this Christmas morning to celebrate the birth of your Son. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who makes it possible for us to be restored to you. Thank you, Father, for the rich promises that you've extended here to this, to this little boy and to their family. We pray, Father, for your blessing upon them. Father, we ask that you'd also bless us this morning as we open your word, as we consider who Christ is and what Christ has done, the great humiliation that he endured in order to save us, in order to rescue us and to bring us into glory. Father, we're deeply grateful for the love that you have for us and for the kindness that you show us. And we pray that as we hear your word this morning, that our hearts may be filled with gratitude and joy for the kindness that you display towards us. Please forgive us our sins, and please hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Plater, if I can invite you to come forward. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let us open our Bibles to Luke's Gospel. That is where we're going to be focusing our Christmas message. So Luke's Gospel, and we'll open to uh, Luke Luke 1, and we'll read the, the prologue to his Gospel. So Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then we'll jump now to verse 26, where we hear about the birth of Christ foretold. So verse 26, in the sixth, sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greetings came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty and has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And now let's continue to chapter chapter two, and we'll read the verses one through seven. Chapter 2, 1 through to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, who is called, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So far from the reading of God's word, let us now sing in response, and we'll sing from hymn 19, verses 1, 3, and 4. Hymn 19, verses 1, 3, and 4. So our text for this morning service is from Luke 2, the verses 8 through 21, 
which is the, about the angels appearing to the shepherds. So Luke 2, and we'll read the verses 8 through 21, and that will be the text for this service. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So far, the reading of God's word, we will proceed to the proclamation of the gospel and afterwards we'll sing from him 21 verses 1 and 2. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at some point while Jesus was walking around Galilee, Philip met Jesus and Jesus looked him in the eye and said, come follow me. Now Philip knew that somehow this rabbi, this teacher was more than just a teacher of the law. Somehow he recognized that this teacher, this person who told them, come follow me, was the Messiah, the one that Israel had been waiting for. And so off he goes, he runs off to Nathanael, his friend, and he tells Nathanael, he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We read that in John 1.45. So he saw fulfillment in this person from Nazareth, all the law and the prophets. Now Nathaniel was quite underwhelmed by this statement. And scratching his head, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, this backwater town, this town of, of no importance, that's where the Messiah was going to come from. You know, Nathaniel's reaction is kind of like the reaction you might get, say, if you were in, in North Perth, Perth, in one of the wealthier suburbs, and say, Elkhamos, or just in Perth, and you say you come from Armadale. Well, Armadale is the end of the train line. It's the end of the Tonkin. It's a backwater place out in the boondocks. Nothing good comes from Armadale. That's kind of the sense of what Nathaniel was saying. 
Now maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? After all, we came here to focus our attention on the birth of Christ. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, brothers and sisters, our Savior lived in Nazareth for 30 years before he began his ministry. The glory of the Son of God was covered up in wood chips for 30 years. He grew up in obscurity in a nothing town. And this is the point. This is part of the emptying of the Son of God. This is part of his humiliation. He let go his glory and he humbled himself. And this humility begins already at his birth. And that is the connection to Christmas. That humility began at his birth. You see, sometimes the problem is we're so used to the Christmas story that it becomes, we, we become, we can kind of romanticize it. You know, we think of this idyllic little town of Bethlehem under the starlit sky, these three wise men coming. You know, it's all kind of postcard-like. And unintentionally sometimes we lose a sense of the amazement of Christ's humility. You see, our Savior wasn't born with fanfare and glory, which he deserved, nor was his royal birth announced in, in the halls of some king, in the halls of Caesar Augustus. Rather, God announced the birth of the Savior in the backwaters of Bethlehem to the lowly and to the humble. And so I bring you God's word under this theme. God reveals the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, to the humble and the lowly. And we'll flesh that out with three things. So firstly, we'll look at the lowly messengers. Then we'll look at, second, the joyous message. And then finally, the modest Messiah. So the lowly messengers. Now God had put it in the heart of the emperor, Caesar Augustus, to register the whole world. And so in obedience to this decree, Joseph and his pregnant wife, they go from Galilee in the north, they go down to Bethlehem in the south. And they go to Bethlehem, as we're told, because Joseph was of the lineage of David. And so they went to Bethlehem, the city of David, to be registered there. And it's while they're there that Mary goes into labor. Now, due to the upsurge in the population of all these people coming to Bethlehem, there wasn't any room for them to stay. And so, as we find in, in the closing verses of, well, verse 7, it says there, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So they laid the child in a poor home where the common space was shared with domestic animals and he was laid in a trough, a feeding trough. But then from there, Luke moves our attention away from the stable, you could say, and he moves it all the way to the region, the surrounding region, the fields. Somewhere in the region, shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, all of which would, would have been a very usual occurrence. But then suddenly, what was ordinary turns into the extraordinary the angel of the Lord appears to them and he's lit with the glory and the majesty of God. It says there, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. It was this incredible display of God's glory. In the Old Testament, we read about the glory of God, which is also known as the Shekinah glory. It was a symbol of his, his presence. It was a symbol of 
it, essentially the Matthew principle, the Emmanuel, the God with us, that God was with his people. So in Exodus 40, we read that the glory of God settled on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It says there, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory filled the tabernacle. He was present with his people. And now here, the glory of God is shining into the darkness and he is announcing salvation. You see, this is a very beautiful fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verse 6, which is what we sang together just before the sermon. Isaiah 9, verse 6, it's, sorry, Isaiah 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. If you think of Israel's history at that point, they've been engulfed by their sin. Think they'd experienced judgment in the exile because of their sin. And we actually read in one of the prophets, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, that the glory of God, it lifts up from the temple and it leaves. God wasn't there with his, the symbol of his presence wasn't there because of the people's sin. And now here, God in his mercy, he shines the light forth again. He shines forth his glory and he's announcing what? The good news of salvation. He has come to save his people from his sin. God is now present with his people once again. He's present to save them. Essentially, this is what Christmas is all about. It's about the, the mercy and the glory of God breaking forth in the darkness of sin and suffering through Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of the glory of God in the face of our Savior. God is with his people once again. And who does God reveal his glory to? Who does God reveal his splendor to? He reveals it to shepherds. So why does God announce his glory to the shepherds? Well, the reason has to do with, once again, humility. The announcement of Christ's birth to the shepherds, it demonstrates how God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God reveals his glory to shepherds. Now to us, that doesn't really strike us as anything newsworthy or, or anything as sort of problematic. We have very positive images of shepherds. You think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, it, it, it generates a very positive picture in our minds. A beautiful picture. However, in first century Palestine, the shepherds didn't have the greatest reputation. So if you think about it, the nature of their work, it meant that they had to be outside of Jerusalem where all the ceremonial laws were done. They had to be outside in the region taking care of the flocks. So it meant that they lived on the fringes of Israel's religious life. More than that, they were also seen as dishonest people, good-for-nothings, people who allowed their, their sheep to just graze on anybody's property. We know that from, there's a Jewish collection of writings about uh, law and theology, and it's called the Talmud. And it says there, it says, further added the following to the list of those disqualified from being witnesses, the shepherds who shepherd animals in the field of others and are therefore considered like robbers, the collectors of government taxes, and then it continues. So they were considered unreliable to the point that they forbid them from witnessing in courts. 
So we could say that shepherds were part of society, but they weren't an honorable part of society. Now why is this important? Well, if we look at Matthew's gospel and his account of the birth of Jesus Christ, he focuses our attention on the wise men coming to our Savior. And why does he do that? Because it connects to the fact that Jesus is the king of David. And so you have these Gentiles, these foreigners, coming with their present to pay homage to the king. That's what he's emphasizing. But here in our passage in Luke, Luke is emphasizing something different. He's emphasizing the humility and the lowly nature of the, the people whom Jesus associates with. He wants to show us our Savior's modesty and His humility. The fact that God appears to shepherds and then announces the good news and makes them messengers of that good news, well, it goes against all human sensibilities. You know, if we were announcing the birth of the Savior... There would have been dignitaries, there would have been high class, we probably would have flown him in on a private jet, they would have driven around in, in a Rolls Royce in some other nice car, there would have been a lot of pomp, a lot of splendor, a lot of show. But that's not God's way. God picks the shepherds, he picks the last people humans would pick. Our God is a God who resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and here we see that. Instead of the angels going to Caesar Augustus, to the emperor, and announcing the, the Savior, and then telling them off to go and, and send the message around the world, no, he goes, he bypasses the proud, he bypasses the mighty, and he goes to the humble, he goes to the lowly, he goes to the outcast. And Luke has already shown us this before. We read that in, in Luke 1. So the angel appears to Mary, and Mary praises God, and she says there in verse 49 to 50 of chapter 1, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation. And then here he says, he has, she says, He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. She praises God. Why? Because he uses a teenager. Because he uses a humble woman. He lifts her up. He exalts her. He uses the outcasts as instruments of his salvation. So God reveals his glory to these shepherds. And then he commissions them to be messengers of the gospel. And now we have to look at what was the content of that message. What we see is that it was a very joyous message. So if you can picture it, the night sky is completely lit. You have the glory of God. It's shining all around as we read. And of course, these shepherds are besides themselves in fear. They feared with a great fear as we read. Which is actually not unusual. If we think of Zechariah, we think of Mary. Both of them had fear in their hearts when they saw the angel. Think of Zechariah in Luke 1 verse 12. We read that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, that is the angel, and fear fell upon him. So the angel comes and each time he says, do not be afraid. So in this respect, the shepherds weren't an outlier. But unlike Mary and unlike Zechariah, the angel appeared to the shepherds and his appearing was accompanied with the glory of God. The glory shone all around. 
You see, congregation, any time a mortal man beholds the glory of God, beholds his awesomeness, we become incredibly aware of our sins and our weakness. We become aware of our unworthiness in the light of his glory. And that is why the shepherds were besides themselves in fear. They were witnessing the glory of God and they were living. But the angel hasn't come to invoke fear, but joy. He comes with gladdings of glad tidings of comfort, comfort and joy. God's history of redemption is on the move. And the Messiah has arrived. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Literally, gospel. A gospel of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we have to slow down a moment and just unpack that together. So the angel's coming with gospel, with good news. The Savior of the world has been born. But interestingly, this is not the first gospel that had been preached. Luke began his birth account of Jesus and he mentioned Caesar Augustus, the emperor. Now there is an inscription from Caesar Augustus. The good news or the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's called the Priene inscription. It says, Providence, which is a Roman goddess, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind sending him as savior both for us and for our descendants that he might end war and arrange all things so that he might bring peace and he continues and then he says since the birthday of the god augustus was the beginning of the good tidings the gospel for the world so this inscription announces the gospel of caesar augustus's birth he is the savior he is the emperor who's going to bring peace but it's interestingly, if you look at one of the contemporaries of Luke's time, there was a philosopher who said, no emperor can give true peace. No emperor can give the peace of the heart for which, he says, man yearns more than for outward peace. Such peace, that kind of peace, it comes through the Savior of Bethlehem. So Caesar has announced his good news, and now the angel comes and he announces the good news, the gospel. Christ, the Messiah, has been born. And that message is a message that the people of Israel have been waiting for for ages. They had heard the prophets who prophesied about anointed person, one who would come as a king who would save the people, who would deliver them from their enemies and also deliver them from their sins, who would restore their fortunes as God's people. Think of Isaiah 9. We've already quoted that before. Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they have that prophecy and now the angel comes and he says, to you this day has been born the Savior of the world. The Messiah has come. And we can't underestimate the feelings that would have invoked in God's people 
This was the person they were waiting for. We, read, we can read a sense of that in, in 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, Peter mentions the longing that the prophets had just to have a little bit of a glimpse of who the Messiah would be. He says there concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They yearned. It was their greatest hopes and dreams. And now it was coming true. It's kind of like, we could think of it like our longing for Christ to come back. Imagine Christ comes back. Imagine the feelings that that would would fill your heart. Your hopes, all your dreams comes true. What a joyous message that would be, wouldn't it? And as we read, this joy wasn't restricted to the Israelites, to the Jews. Yes, Christ came first to the Jews. And we can see that in our passage. It says there, it says that it's a message of great joy who will be for all the people. And the phrase, all the people, was a, a, a phrase that was often used to describe the Jews, the, the Israelites. But what we see is that it wasn't restricted to the Jews. Because then when we continue, when we look at Simeon, the, uh, the, the prophet, he blesses baby Jesus and he says, he describes Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for the glory to your people Israel. It wasn't just for the Jews. It it was for everybody. Everyone whom God had called to himself. Everyone, as it says, whom God was pleased with. No wonder why heaven just burst forth in joy. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus Christ, the Savior, he's come. He's come not just for the Jews, but for all who would believe in Him and trust in Him. True peace, lasting peace. It doesn't come from Caesar Augustus. It doesn't come from His gospel. It comes from Jesus. And with that, the angel disappears. The hosts disappear. And having heard the good news, they go off. And they go to find the Savior. And they're confronted with a a modest Messiah. And that brings us to our third point, the modest Messiah. So as soon as the angels disappear, the shepherds say to one another, they say, let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that the Lord has made known to us. And you can see that there's an urgency in their words. They made haste. And even what they say to each other, you could put it this way. They say, come, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Let's go find this, this Savior. And so off they go running to Bethlehem in haste looking for the baby. And they find, as it says, Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And they found him because of the sign that the angels had given. The angels said that this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A congregation, when you think about it, that is crazy. The shepherds needed a sign to recognize whom the angel was speaking about. That's how unassuming the Messiah was. Without a sign, they would have walked right past the Messiah without even realizing it. You see, the only thing that distinguished this little boy 
from all the other boys in Bethlehem wrapped in swaddling cloths was that he was the only boy lying in a manger, lying in a feed trough. How foolish does that really seem? How crazy is that? Think of who this baby was. This baby is the king of the house of David. This baby is the fulfillment of promise. He's holy. He's the son of God. He's the son of the Most High. He's the Savior of the world, the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And yet you find him in a stinky stable. See, congregation, if it was us, we would have walked right past our Savior. Think about the the kind of splendor the Son of God should have come in. He should have come and the host of heaven burst forth so that everybody could see. He should have come and been in a golden bassinet so that when they come, they see his wealth and see his splendor. But instead, our Lord slips into history almost unnoticed in an obscure town in the backwaters of Bethlehem, far away from the halls of wealth and power. That's the sign of our Savior's modesty. The sign is that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, without that sign, the shepherds would have come there and probably thought, have we got the wrong address? If it was them, they would have looked for the nicest house on the street. They would look for the person who was most successful, probably the one who was the most prominent. Who would expect the restoration of Israel, the salvation of the world, coming from someone whose poverty was so great that he was in a stable? And yet here he is, the Savior of the world. No doubt... That's why the people marveled. That's why the people wondered to themselves and were amazed. As it says there in 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. They marveled at the angel's announcement. They they wondered with amazement at the sign the angel had given. A modest Messiah. Congregation, the modesty and the meekness of our Lord, it challenges the pride of our hearts. Christmas is a call for us to check our pride at the door. You see, many struggle with exactly that. It doesn't make sense. You speak to someone just just out there, we're so used to the Christmas story, but you speak to someone out in the world and they hear you talk about a Savior, a Lord, yes, that sounds great. And then you say, who is he? Oh, he is one with lowly messengers, one who had humble beginnings, one whose meekness was so great that he was in a stable. Well, that doesn't seem to match his identity as Lord and King. It's too much. See, our Lord, his humiliation could have been that he just came as a grown man. And that would have been a humiliation. That would have been an emptying and a laying aside of his glory. And yet our Lord came in the truest sense of humanity. Think about it. The creator passes through the birth canal of his creation. That's how humbled our Savior became for us. He became a baby whose very existence depends on its mother. We have a beautiful reminder of that this morning. Elias is dependent on his parents for everything. His life hangs in the balance according to his parents' love and compassion for him and according to his parents' care. That's how lowly 
your Savior became for you. That's how lowly Christ came for you. He humbled himself as a baby. And we would expect so different, wouldn't we? And maybe a part of us wants it to be different. Because often it's easier to to believe that someone great and someone powerful, that's where our salvation comes from. But what about a vulnerable, defenseless baby? You see, we tend to gravitate to, to status, to glory, to acclaim, to success. Not to lowly, not to humble, not to meek. Think of Naaman in the Old Testament. He was this foreigner. He, he hears that Elijah could do these great he, uh, healing miracles. And so he's this high-class official, but he's got leprosy. And so he comes down to Israel. He comes to Elijah. He speaks to Elijah, and he says, can you please heal me? And Elijah says, go wash yourself in the Jordan. And he's enraged. Why? Because the Jordan is full of stinky, dirty water. And he says to himself, are you serious? We have, we have rivers that are ten times better than that. I'm not going to wash in that. Why was he so mad? Because he wanted something prestigious. He wanted something extraordinary. He wanted Elijah to do something miraculous to him. That's how he wanted to be healed. That's how he wanted to be saved. He didn't want to humble himself like that. And we're often no different. Our hearts will happily seek our salvation from someone great, from someone mighty. But will you seek your salvation from someone who came and said, I have come to be served, not to serve, to serve, not to be served? Will you seek your salvation from a Savior who described the very core of his character as being gentle and lowly of heart? You see, our God has glorious news for us this Christmas. It's a gospel of peace. It's a gospel of salvation. But to receive it, we must humble ourselves before God. We must humble ourselves before our Savior. We can't just marvel at the story. But we have to believe that this child was born for our salvation. Think of what the angel said. He said, to you, Mr. Shepherd, is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To you. To you, Southern River, is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the question is, will you believe? Will you humble yourself and believe in that Savior? And that's why we read from the opening verses of Luke's gospel. Because that's why he wanted us, why he put together his gospel. He went to all the eyewitnesses. He checked all the accounts. He made sure everything lined up. And why did he do that? To bring certainty so that we might believe. He didn't do it so that on December 1st we could, we could change our, Chris, our music to Christmas music. He didn't do it so that he could give us an excuse to go for a holiday, which is a lovely excuse to give us. He didn't do it so that we could all of a sudden give presents, which is also a nice thing to do. But he gave it so that we might believe, so that you might find your salvation in the modest Messiah. His coming was a step down, and yet he descended still further for you, congregation. 
for this gospel, this glorious news that he gave to these lowly shepherds. It wasn't of a mighty emperor who would come and bring peace by waging war and inflicting suffering and bloodshed. No, it would come by a savior who would humble himself to the point of death on a cross and who would shed his own blood for you. So that you might be washed by his blood and forgiven of all your sins. It's a gospel of a great shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. That's what Philippians talks about. Philippians 2, it speaks that Christ emptied himself. He didn't grasp onto his glory, but he became a man. And then it says that he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. He poured out his blood for you. He died for you. He was humbled at his birth, but he stepped lower for you. He humbled himself to death for you so that you might live, so that you might be washed. That's what the sign of baptism points us to. That God promises to wash us with the blood of Christ. God promises to apply what our humble Savior obtained for us by his death and he gives that to us through faith. God promised Elias that he would wash him, that he would cleanse him. And that he would renew him through the Spirit. And that's what God has promised you. And now he calls us to respond in faith. To respond and believe. And to humble ourselves. Congregation, let's check our pride at the door. And humble ourselves. Behold, this Christmas, the meekness and the modesty of your Savior. And humble yourselves before him that you might receive salvation and life. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Amen. Let us now sing in response hymn 21 verses 1 and 2.
Let's come before God in prayer. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that your glory burst forth in the night sky around Bethlehem. We thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness of sin, but you sent a Savior, a Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. You declared that our sin and our brokenness was not our future. You had good news for your people. You had good news, salvation from sin and from death. And Father, we marvel at your ways. Lord, if we were announcing something important, there would be people of high standing, there would be red carpets, fanfare, media coverage, the whole lot. But Lord, all that is nothing to you. You resist all of that. Instead, you display your glory and weakness and humility so that Paul could say that it's in broken vessels, in broken vessels, that you showcase your glory. Father, we stand amazed at the modesty of our Savior. Lord Jesus, born a baby and yet a king, born in poverty and yet the one in whom are found all the riches of heaven. We pray that as you led the shepherds of old to, to worship you and to glorify God Almighty, that first Christmas, we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit so that we would cast off our pride and that we would offer to you the adoration and the worship that you deserve, that we would present all of ourselves to you. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we celebrate your birth today, fill our hearts with joy, satisfy us with fellowship and friendship, and bless us as we enjoy this, this day of rest, this day of resurrection. Help us not to, to get so caught up in all the ornaments and the decorations that we miss the true meaning of Christmas. That we miss the true meaning of all those traditions. But instead, may our Christmas festivities help us to find meaning and joy in the Christ of Christmas. Jesus, our Savior. Father, we pray that you would receive... Our praise and our worship receive also our offerings of thankfulness. And Father, with that, we pray for the, uh, the needy South African churches. Father, we thank you for the federation over there. We thank you for your work all over this world. We praise you that we're able to be partners of the gospel with, with people so far away from us. And Father, the churches in South Africa are dear to us. We have many who have connections to the church. We have family over there. And Father, we thank you that we can... We can be church together. Despite the distance, we are united by a faith. A faith that transcends all boundaries and all distances. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would bless our offerings, that you would receive our worship, and that you would hear us in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your offerings. And the offering is for the South African needy churches. And as you do so, remember the words of Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4. Do, not, do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but with all humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then afterwards, we'll continue singing hymn 21 and continue the thought in verses 3, and six, 3 to 6.
receive the blessing of God and go and enjoy this Christmas festivities. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.